Hi, and welcome to Impact Audio, the podcast thinking critically and talking deeply about transformative social impact. I'm Rachel Mandel, and for the following episode, I spoke with Luke Freeman, Executive Director of Giving What We Can. We discussed effective altruism, including criticisms of the movement, plus Luke's thoughts on CSR, impact assessment, and how the pandemic has affected charitable giving. You can learn more about Luke's work and background, as well as giving what we can, on the webpage for this episode. I hope you enjoy listening in. Hi, Luke Freeman. Welcome to Impact Audio. How are you today? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're, we're very happy to have you. Out of curiosity, what time is it for you? now <laughs> it's just gone seven past seven in the morning so having my ah. morning coffee <laughs> nice well thank you for for getting up early to talk with us today um well so to start uh will you briefly orient our listeners who might not be familiar to effective altruism yeah so effective altruism is first and foremost a question uh, we ask how can we use our resources to do the most good and then taking action on the basis of what we find so it's both an area of research as well as a social movement. Um, and the movement's been growing a lot in recent years uh, with a particular focus on how to use our money and time to help others as effectively as possible. Fantastic. And then um, tell us about Giving What We Can. Yeah, so Giving What We Can is a community of effective givers. So we provide support, community and information that people need when they're trying to maximize their charitable impact. We're most well known for the Giving What We Can pledge to give 10% of lifetime earnings to high-impact charities, of which over 7,000 people have taken the pledge, including dozens of public figures, a couple of billionaires, and thousands of the rest of us, from teachers and tradesmen to technologists and traders. Uh, Giving What We Can also helped found the effective altruism movement and continues to be a key organization advocating that we use our money to do the most good as we can in the form of donations. How did you get involved? Yeah, so kind of started a long time ago for the long version of the story, which is when I was a kid, I was really shocked when I learned that there were, while I was healthy and well-fed, many children were starving and suffering from easily preventable diseases. I was privileged not uh, because of anything I had done, but just due to being born in a rich country to a you know, stable family and being pretty healthy. This led me to become involved in anti-poverty campaigns around the millennium, things like 40-hour famine and make poverty history. Then I entered uh, the workforce on an entry-level wage uh, in the middle of the financial crisis back in you know, 2008, and I had credit card debt from studying in Canada and the Australian dollar crashing when I had to pay student fees, um, and uh, had just one income between me and my partner, and we learned to be pretty frugal, but I still had this desire to give back, and so as soon as my income uh, got a bit higher, my wife got a job and I got a raise, uh, that's when I wanted to start giving. And when you decide that you want to give a reasonable amount to help others, you start to care a lot about where that money goes. Uh, so I started digging, and that's when I found organizations like Giving What We Can. Fantastic. So to shift gears a little, um, what are the psychological factors that you think motivate or, or maybe negate altruism? Yeah, so the first one I think that comes to mind is empathy. Um, empathy is us kind of our ability to understand and share the feelings of another. When we see someone in need, our natural reaction is to feel empathy and therefore to take action. The problem with being motivated by empathy, however, is that, you know, psychology research shows, and I'm sure we've all seen this, that it can sometimes lead us to discriminate against who we help based on factors that should be irrelevant. For example, we might be more likely to help people who are more like us, who we can relate to more easily, such as people of our same gender, age, nationality, religion, or species. 
A better motivation that does exist for a lot of people is compassion. Uh, so that's the desire to relieve the suffering of others without any discrimination and very much from wanting to do it from their perspective in the way that helps them. So the recognition that we're all able to suffer and that we should help um, equally as much as we can. And it's a bit of a more reliable uh, motivation. It doesn't require us to discriminate who we help. And it also helps us to have more kind of sustainable motivation than being triggered by just empathy. Another factor is often obligation, duty or guilt, uh, which is more of a negative uh, motivation that we feel when we've done something wrong or we see someone uh, suffering, we might feel guilty because we have more resources than others and we're not doing as much with them and people don't have them. It might kind of guilt us, uh, feel guilty that we should give that to others. And while that can be a motivation, sometimes I prefer to focus on more of an opportunity motivation than an, than an obligation. So going, we do have this huge opportunity to help others. Um, and that's a lot of good that we could be doing. And that when people do that, they do find that really motivating to continue to do more good. Absolutely. I'm just curious how you think um, proximity impacts empathy and compassion, right? When we can't see, you know, firsthand um, what's happening within a community, what can motivate us to care? Yeah. So as mentioned earlier, empathy often relies on things like proximity. Um, it, we can overcome it, but it is a lot harder. This is why I often find um people taking the time to actually think about what it is they truly value and be somewhat consistent in their values and make judgments that are more intentional. So I don't know if you're familiar with the system one and system two thinking. So Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky, psychologist who won the Nobel Prize, developed the dual systems theory where people use kind of a more slow and rational thinking sometimes and more kind of intuitive and fast thinking other times. Empathy is very much a fast thinking emotion. Compassion can be more of a slow thinking emotion. And when you take the time to kind of sit and think about what you actually truly value, you realize that proximity is often not really at the scale <laughs> that it, it could be. So we feel a lot of proximity-led empathy. But if we stop and think, well, is it really the case that someone who lives on the other side of my country is 100 times more valuable and more important than someone who lives you know in another country who might be cheaper to help and you could help more people there so it is this kind of slow reflective process that i think can be really helpful and sometimes it just comes from a realization that just the numbers can be so different right absolutely um so along those lines why do you think donating and volunteering can be hard things to motivate especially when when you know people who do them do tend to find value in them yeah, that's the trillion dollar question, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> why do we not do things that we uh, know we get value from? Look, change is hard um, and often requires us to overcome our natural tendencies. Um, and this isn't limited to donating and volunteering. There's so many things that bring us and the world a lot of value that we struggle to motivate ourselves to do. That's why we encourage people to not leave it up to chance and to not rely on making the decisions on a whim. We encourage people to you know, take a moment to stop and think about what their values are, what they want their giving behaviors to be over the long term, and to change your identity in, as part of the process and thinking about yourself as someone who gives. And, you know, One way of doing that is we have things like our giving pledges, or you can set up a recurring donation. You can surround yourself with other people who give and give more and, and think about that more intentionally. And the other thing is we're really motivated by other people, uh, particularly people who we trust and admire. We find that that's the biggest source of people uh, coming across giving what we can and, and changing their giving behaviors is they've heard someone in their life or someone um, 
on something like a podcast um, that, you know, talk about um, giving and if they can admire the person and understand that behavior and that motivation, we start to think about, well, is this something that I could be thinking about in my own life? One of my, the best parts of my days is reading member motivations um, when they sign up. So people tell you know, why they're doing this, why they're giving a meaningful amount to help others. And it is the most encouraging thing that definitely keeps me going. And you definitely see trends like people realizing the luck that they have and wanting to share that with others and wanting to you know do the most good they can and look it's really motivating to see and um yeah we're looking at ways to surface this more um and you know help people see just the joy that others get and and the motivation that others have to help others and that it's something you can actually picture yourself doing too yeah absolutely i can see i can see the pledge being very powerful too in terms of like an accountability piece of it yeah well it's actually like a big part of um, the reason we created it as well is there's another thing in psychology is the idea of pre-commitment um, that we're much more likely to do things uh, if we commit to it in advance. And that's another thing that also changes our social identity, kind of our commitments of things. Like you might even identify yourself as a, you know, giving what we can pledge member. Like this is a behavior that you've internalized and you know that you're accountable, not just to yourself, um, but to everyone who's done it before you and everyone who comes after you. And that internalizing of, you know, things that you care about, it, like be being, you know, like being a feminist or an environmentalist, is kind of these things we really kind of take into our, our identity, things that we've committed to, um, especially if those commitments are public. Even if not many people will ever see it, like we have a list of thousands of people um, <laughs> and very few people scroll through that whole list, um, but you know that you've done it. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. So if we're thinking about companies, right, through, um, through CSR, corporate giving, um, that are trying to inspire their employees to give back or volunteer, um, what do you think they can do to help motivate employees? Yeah, so I think it begins by starting the conversation. We, you know, we do a lot of things like uh, work, workplace talks or we know workplaces that organize events or fundraisers. They provide resources on giving, um, uh, things like, I know one major tech startup in Australia, like anyone can request a, a book, uh, Doing Good Better, uh, in, from their like corporate social responsibility team. Um, and that you know, helps people guide them through this process. So really being kind of at the forefront of your community of employees. And that's often really good for the company as well, because people, you know, one of the number one things that people look for in work these days, uh, particularly uh, millennials and Gen Z, is you know, meaning and purpose. And, it, and they're much more likely to work for a company that is taking you know, their social responsibilities really seriously and really leading by example. Other things I've seen is like calls to action in really strategic places. Like when someone gets a letter saying that they got a pay rise or a promotion or a bonus, that's a time to give them the option to enroll in a workplace giving program or to participate in a company fundraiser. And another thing is just leading by example, things like providing donor matching, senior leadership, you know, being kind of open about their giving and contributing things like maybe they're the ones who are doing the donor matching. And of course, we've also had companies um, take a pledge themselves that they're going to give a certain portion of their profits to high impact charities. So yeah, there are lots of ways that you know, companies could really take action and, and really lead here. Those are great suggestions. So according to effective altruism, what are the factors that determine effectiveness in a charity? Yeah, so effectiveness is just starting with what is the effect that you want to have. So you generally think about some kind of outcome that we care about, things like 
lives saved, quality of life improvement, risk reduction, um, years of education. These are all concerned with the amount of good that we're doing. So cost effectiveness is simply the case of how much good you can do for the amount of resources that you use. But of course, uh, it isn't very easy always to have cost effective estimates for every possible thing you could give to. Doing cost effective estimates are pretty hard um, and there's a lot of uncertainty in that. So we find it helps to start by finding a promising cause to support. And these are generally causes that are going to be large in scale. So they significantly impact many lives or by a large amount that they're neglected. So they still need more funding and support. There aren't a lot of other people funding that already. Uh, and so therefore it often has a lot more room for funding and that they're tractable. So they're actually clear ways of making uh, progress. So if you've got something that's you know big, there aren't many people working on it and there's something to be done, there's a good chance that uh, a lot of the low hanging fruit haven't been picked and there's something really superb to fund that isn't getting the money. So once you've narrowed it down to some like high impact causes um, with some you know, clear interventions, then you're looking for an outstanding organization working to support the cause. First, get some evidence that, you know, that charity actually has the ability to execute on that, you know, that there is evidence of effectiveness or at least a strong track record. And then you start to figure out, well, how much of that outcome are you getting for the money that you're putting in? And that requires things like transparency, the charity be willing to be open about this. Fortunately, there are a few uh, organizations out there to help. Given what we can, we have a lot of resources on our website uh, about you know, different cause areas and different charities within them. There are charity evaluators like GiveWell and Animal Charity Evaluators and Founders Pledge, as well as grant making organizations who can do a lot of this work on your behalf. Uh, but we also have guides for how, how you would do this on your own if you were looking at something as well. And how do you see giving what we can's role in terms of global philanthropy? Yeah, so giving what we can started as a global movement of people who pledge to donate a portion of their incomes to the most effective charities. And that's partly because we believe that everyone has you know, a moral obligation and an opportunity to give back. And we wanted to make that as kind of effective and easy as possible. And that was back in 2009. And since then, not only have thousands of people uh, joined our community, but we've and we've raised hundreds of millions of dollars ourselves and pledged you know, many billions. We've also seen that the philanthropic sector has responded to the ideas of effective altruism. Um, and you know, many quite notable philanthropists um, have you know, started to put this into their thinking from you know, the founders of uh, one of the founders of Facebook, Dustin Moskowitz and his wife, Carrie Tuna, they started open philanthropy. One of our members, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried recently has done quite well with his cryptocurrency exchange and his one of the youngest billionaires and he's like was inspired to do this because when he was at MIT one of our founders uh, gave a talk about earning to give and he was like oh this sounds great if I can earn a lot of money and give it to some really high impact causes I can do a lot of good in the world and yeah so we're seeing this starting to change and we're also seeing organizations like Charity Navigator uh, which uh, used to just look at things like overhead how much is a you know charity spend on their operational costs or something like that relative to the amount they spend on programs, which isn't a very good measure of effectiveness. They're starting to really look at what they can do to improve effectiveness measures as well when they're communicating and looking at charities. Um, so to shift gears a little bit, you know, at Submittable and really it seems like across the 
um, philanthropic sector, at least in the United States, um, for sure, we've been talking a lot about trust-based philanthropy. And that's, you know, the idea that funders can create unnecessary barriers for nonprofits, that some of the power dynamics may be out of balance, or that funders um, could stand maybe to loosen their grip or provide funds with more trust and transparency, focus on relationship building. What's your response to, to trust-based philanthropy? Yeah, well, at the end of the day, it all starts with asking what's best for the beneficiary. Um, and when it comes to trust, I think uh, when it comes to organizations, I think trust is something it's earned. Um, I'll look at this example of Play Pumps. So that they were a charity that advertised themselves as an innovative way to provide drinking water in impoverished rural communities by using, using the energy created by children playing uh, to operate a water pump, a little bit like a merry-go-round, like a, they run around and it should kind of like keep spinning. Um, they received a ton of accolades and funding. People trust them uh, trust them a lot and love the idea that playtime with kids could result in access to water. The only problem is it didn't end up working out as planned. They needed to spin all day long in order to provide enough water for a community, but it meant because it didn't have the feature of if it actually is a toy, it keeps spinning and spinning. Whereas if it's actually pumping water, it requires constant pressure. So you ended up, unfortunately, most of the kids didn't want to play with it. So the women who were currently using hand pumps um, had to like push this awkward, you know, uh, merry-go-round thing around to pump water. And then they ended up breaking more regularly than hand pumps. And it was, it was a complete mess, but people loved the idea and they kind of just trusted the organization to run with it. So I prefer to like start with a process of building that trust. So look at organizations that are doing great work, work closely with a funder. You don't want the funder to put the thumb on the scale too much, but it is important that we use science and reason to find these, you know, really important causes and, and charities that are actually doing good work. You can operate in a really high trust environment once you know that they have earned that. And then, to be honest, at Giving What We Can, we have funders uh, to do our work and we work closely with them. They trust me to run the organization, but I really value their input as to how I go about it. The questions they ask make us better at what we do. <laughs> However, when it comes to individual recipients of aid, I default to trust. Um, one outstanding organization is Give Directly. They provide uh, cash directly to the world's poorest and they operate on a very high trust model that people know what they need most for themselves. And that works for many things. However, sometimes you can have even more impact by doing things at scale, providing public goods such as school-based deworming programs or vaccination programs. These are all types of things that people are unlikely to buy for themselves or they have strong diffuse public benefits. So like if I'm vaccinated, that not only protects me, but it protects you as well. So there are critics of effective altruism and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Does effective altruism address the root of major global problems? I, I wish that we all understood all, the exact roots of all major global problems. It's something <laughs> that we, all, we actually care about finding. <laughs> yes. if, you, if you know, tell me. Um, um, so just to reiterate, effective altruism isn't a set of interventions. It's all about using the best tools available to us to do the most good we can. So we care about being open-minded and following the evidence where it leads. This means that it's always responding to the world as it is and changing as the world changes around us. So in practice, that means that we have many different approaches to working on some of the world's most pressing problems. You have things like, like I mentioned, cash transfers, which are like really, you know, high trust to the beneficiary, um, giving people kind of a lot of autonomy in what they do. Poverty is often the cause of poverty. You try to help people get out of the poverty trap. Similarly, health uh, can often be a major barrier to getting out of poverty. For example, you know, we've seen this with COVID. If you're sick and I'm able to go to work um, or you're, you've lost parent or guardian, your life is going to 
going to be a lot worse off. So if you can solve a lot of the health issues, you get people able to go to school, able to go to work and things like that. So those are actually root problems in many places. And then there's other things like if you're looking at climate um, or animal welfare, a lot of the most uh, you know, impactful interventions are going to be policy based. Same with things like nuclear proliferation. You're trying to figure out you know, which organizations do a really good job at changing policy, again, which is a kind of systemic change. So Effective altruists love systemic change when you can find those things, but we do care about being really specific about what you mean when you think of systemic change. A lot of the time people might kind of like throw their hands up and use some like ideological, like this is all stuff, you know, blah, blah, capitalism or blah, blah, you know, socialism. (laughs) It's like, okay, well, let's look at the details. Like, what are we talking about? Is this something that could be solved by certain aid or philanthropic giving, or is this a policy problem? Really trying to get quite practical and quite detailed what we think um, when we are talking about problems. When you mentioned capitalism or socialism, are those, when people bring those up as ideologies, are they saying that they are problematic? I I think a lot of people um, like to have social and political identities that they haven't necessarily thought through and uh, to a large extent what that means for policies and actions. Um, And they like to point to like words that they hear and, and kind of label it. Uh, at the end of the day, I think that those, you know, being too, leaning too much into labels um, can sometimes create more confusion than it actually creates clarity. Um, I can explain what, you know, giving what we can is. We're a global community of individuals who've come together to voluntarily redistribute for many people in kind of higher incomes to those who need it most, um, working together alongside experts to find the most effective ways of improving lives. Um, we draw from across the political spectrum, across almost 100 countries. We're only united um, by our commitments to put our money where our mouth is and to do as much good as we can when we help up, try to help others. Um, yeah, people can approach that from many different, you know, political or uh, religious even perspectives. We have people who have you know, religious motivations for doing that. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that we fit neatly into any particular political ideology. Um, at the end of the day, we care about um, the lives of others and whichever ways we can find that help, I think are the you know, ways to go about it. <laughs> um, have you noticed any difference between how U.S. audiences perceive effective altruism versus an Australian or a, or a global audience? I think that the U.S. is an interesting one. Um, of rich countries, they are one of the richest countries on earth, uh, depending on how you look at it, but they also have higher domestic poverty and and income inequality. So a median income person in Australia could much more comfortably give a significant portion of their income to help others. And, you know, they're less likely to come across uh, as much poverty when walking down the street or see as much, you know, domestic problems. So it is easier to, back to when we talked about rational compassion um, and impartiality, to think about others abroad or to think about animals or to think about future generations. So, yeah, I think there is that difference in America. Also, America has a, a lot of really um, religious-driven giving. So Americans give more, but they also give more to things that are religious and also things that would otherwise be uh, provided uh, by the state in, in in many other countries. So pe- people in the U.S. donate to their like local public schools or hospitals and stuff like that. 
which happens a lot less in, in other places in the world. So bigger philanthropic center in the US, but it's very domestically focused. And a lot of it is on public goods or, or not even public goods, more club goods. So things that help people immediately around the donor. Um, so, and you also see there's a big problem in the US with things like, because you can fund public schools uh, with private money and also things like, you know, council rate, land rates or whatever it is, you end up with a system that is public that it has very differential outcomes. <laughs> um, so yeah, it is different in the US. Um, that being said, the idea that in whatever we're doing, it's good to be effective, no moral system, uh, and very few people actually have a problem with that in abstract. And a lot of the time when it comes to actually implementing that, if we can help more people uh, or help people more, that's generally a good thing. And, and many people take to that. Um, so yeah. Absolutely. Do you, I'm curious how you feel that the pandemic has impacted um, the movement for effective altruism. Yeah, so it is an interesting one. Uh, pandemic preparedness is actually something that we had been making a lot of noise about um, for several years, for many years before um, the latest uh, you know, pandemic came. You know, COVID in, 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 in historical terms and uh, relative to other things is actually much, much uh, less severe of a pandemic for the types of ones that are actually worried about. So the community um, on, on the biosecurity and pandemic risk stuff uh, was able to respond in many ways. I think we could have done better, but we'd done some thinking about it already. Things like people who were working on uh, things like channel challenge trials or other technologies or, you know, doing kind of predictive work. I think that it shows that there was like this issue that we cared a lot about that we thought was really neglected. And now that people are aware of it, hopefully has some chance of being more, tr more tractable. In terms of things like the global philanthropic sector, we saw, you know, um, when there are tough economic times, you get uh, the effect where sometimes the rich can even get richer and then the poor can get poorer. So, People who had more who actually gave more, which was good to see that they were kind of sharing those riches that came from weird things like the stock market rallying more and crypto and things like that rallying at times when they were tough. But we also saw that people who uh, were had less were able to give less as well. But that's also you know, reasonable. Uh, in terms of the movement, it, it has been also just correlating with the time that we've had a lot of growth. So I don't think it was necessarily driven by this. But that being said, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people had time where they were at home, a chance to read, to really reflect. And I did speak with a lot of people who had been kind of aware of some of these ideas and then finally got the chance to, you know, read a book or listen to a podcast or, you know, go online and kind of go, you know, what am I doing with my life? Um, and we're seeing this also with things like the Great Resignation. Uh, you know, there are people have been triggered to think about like what they're actually doing with their life. And, and I think that's a good thing. Um, and for, in our case, it's led to a lot of people going, okay, what's my legacy going to be? Um, am I just going to kind of get to my deathbed having uh, done a bunch of things myself? Um, or am, am I going to have helped a lot of people through you know, my money my time? And what do I, what do I stand for? And, and that's been really good to see in, in spite of all that's gone on. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, so what's what's on deck for giving what we can in the next few years? Yeah, so um, kind of coming immediately and we've kind of soft launched this is the ability to donate uh, via us uh, so that people can uh, find some of these you know, really high impact charities and, and even just a cause and, and pick a cause that they care about and we can help find the best charities for them. So that's in being released quietly and will soon be more prominent and just as a way of helping people to follow through with their desire to help others 
continuing to build out our you know, research on, on various different cause areas. Um, we have a new climate change report coming out very soon, which I'm very excited about. Um, and uh, yeah, one of our founders, uh, Will McCaskill, he's releasing a book in August, which is available for pre-order, uh, What We Owe the Future. That is about you know, the far future and uh, future generations um, and the actions we're taking now that can really affect the lives that they have um, and why it's you know, kind of quite important and significant that we don't screw that future up um, and that it can be as good as possible. So yeah, that I'm very much looking forward to. I'm fortunate to have read an early manuscript and it's a fantastic book. So, And our community continues to grow uh, and that's really exciting. Uh, I, we're seeing the effects um, more broadly of just more people thinking about impact and more people thinking about others. And that's super exciting. And it just makes me really, really happy to see, you know, in a world where there's a lot of things going on, people um, taking a moment to think about others and, and doing so really intentionally. Thanks for listening. Check out our episode notes to learn more about effective altruism and to access great resources focused on social impact and CSR. Impact Audio is edited and produced by Jordan Marvin, Laura Steele, and yours truly. Submittable is a cloud-based social impact platform designed to help your team make better decisions and have a bigger impact. We'd love to partner with you to maximize social good and create lasting change through smarter technology. Find out more at submittable.com. And until next time, take good care.